eavesdrop on the evening beeswax, you steaming ephus. What's the crack? Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. You are profoundly welcome, you glorious goals. If this is your first podcast, maybe go back and listen to some other episodes. I always recommend that new listeners try and listen to some of the back catalogue to familiarise yourself with the lore of this podcast. Although I do think this podcast episode will be accessible to first-time listeners because this is going to be a little hot take episode about art and conspiracy, some of my favourite topics. And I reckon I have some new listeners this week because this podcast was recommended on The Guardian last week, right? But it was recommended in the food section of The Guardian. I'm like, what the fuck? Why the fuck are the the food section of The Guardian recommending my podcast? And they gave me a lovely review. And the review said, Blind by Ball Club's hugely popular weekly podcast contains some of the best food writing being published anywhere right now. No, thank you very much, The Guardian. I'll take a compliment if it's thrown at me. But I was quite shocked. I'm like, what the fuck? My podcast is food writing? And the, re- the review went on to say, Recent podcasts have taken in everything from Subway's roots in submarines built by Irish Republicans, Custard Creams and the CIA, Salt Bay, how one chicken shop in Limerick is the custodian of the original KFC recipe. But Blind Boy's masterpiece is the extended riff on the chicken fillet roll which manages to tell the economic story of 21st century Ireland through a sandwich. And then I went, fucking hell. I have done loads of podcasts about food, haven't I? There was the podcast about the, the history of pineapples. There was the podcast about lobsters and the colour purple. There was the podcast about people in the 18th century in New York eating rubber sandwiches and how effervescent fizzy drinks were invented because of excess marble created by St. Patrick's Cathedral. And I went, holy fuck, I am doing a lot of podcasts about food. But in my mind, I'm like, these aren't food podcasts, they're just podcasts about culture and history. I just happened to use food to tell that story. For me, it was just interesting storytelling like that podcast about the rubber sandwiches it was called Soda Jerk and it was from June 2020 but that podcast was a history of anti-Irish racism in 19th century America when there was excessive alcoholism amongst Irish immigrants because that addiction is how they were dealing with the trauma of the fucking famine And I wanted to tell that story. But an interesting way to tell that story is... Let me tell you why people ate sandwiches made out of rubber in New York in the 1890s. Because that's storytelling. That's the mechanics of fiction writing. Then you have someone's attention. So I didn't know I was doing food writing. So thank you to The Guardian for saying that I'm doing good food writing. I suppose the reason I, I often use food as an entry into a podcast is it's a very simple technique called establishing authority and I use this technique when when I write short stories or when I'm writing TV scripts establishing authority means opening a story with a statement or a fact that's intriguing and interesting and when the reader reads it or hears it they go I need, to, I need to know where the fuck he's going with this. And then you have the reader's attention. And then once you have their attention, you tell the actual story that you want to tell. I'm feeling particularly limber and flexible this week. Because I went for a neuropathic massage. So I gave myself all sorts of injuries over lockdown. Because I love exercising. I adore exercising and I try to do it six days a week if I can. But over lockdown, the gyms were closed... So all I could do was run. But while I was running, I was running every single day, wasn't listening to my body, and I gave myself a terrible Achilles heel injury, completely my own fault. But fuck it, what was I going to do? 
I couldn't stay inside all the time. With lockdown, I was going stone mad. And then what else happened was, so I was running my usual 10 kilometers, which is quite a bit. But through years and years of going to the gym and lifting weights, I developed these muscles all over my body. And these muscles, my chest, my back, my legs, these were all acting as shock absorption when I was running. So when the gyms closed, all that muscle went away. So when I was running, it was a bit like cycling a bike with a flat tyre. It's difficult, you can do it for a little bit, but eventually the wheel will buckle. So that happened, and I ended up with a myriad of problems on the right-hand side of my body. In particular, a pinched ulnar nerve in my shoulder, which is a continual pain from the back of my shoulder all the way down my arm to my baby finger, and I don't have full mobility of my arm, and it gets worse every time I go to the gym, and it means I can't enjoy lifting weights anymore. A very annoying and depressing affliction that I've had for the past year so this is making me feel miserable so I went to a for a fucking neuropathic massage which I'd never gotten before and it was phenomenal now it wasn't the experience of it was fucking horrible like this woman really really hurt me she identified all the trapped nerves and all the muscles in my body that were getting stuck against bone and she stuck cups onto my back and she basically ripped into my body and pulled muscle away from bone and put it back where it was supposed to be it was like a drunk person giving me a tattoo with a hammer on my rib cage she literally like she identified a problem in my rib cage too and she had, she had to poke her fucking fingers in between my ribs and pull muscles away I was howling and screaming in pain. This was a very painful 90 minutes. And I'm covered in bruises. But fuck me, did it work. And then she gave me stretches and exercises. So some of my mobility is back. I'm going to have to return to her for the neuropathic massage until I'm fully sorted. But what was incredible about the massage wasn't necessarily the massage. But the emotional experience of the massage afterwards particularly the sleep that I had that night like this is the bit I can't explain because western medicine doesn't appear to have a fucking explanation for it but I've basically spent a year with a continual non-stop persistent pain in my shoulder nothing excruciating just can't move my neck properly can't move my arm properly a consistent pain that's always there and never leaves at any point in the day And the thing is, with a pain like that, because it doesn't stop, you just kind of get used to it. So my brain would just get used to it. But at all times, I'm tense. I'm tense for a year. And this physical tension that I'm not consciously aware of anymore is causing me stress, anger. The overall emotion of it is that a sensation of unfairness. Let's call it that. When you have a pain for an entire year, there's a hum of unfairness. I would then search for themes of unfairness in my day and start viewing my life through a lens of unfairness, thinking quite negatively. And with an emotional hum of unfairness comes a sense of anger about it and a sense of anxiety and worry because the anxiety and worry is will it ever end but all of these feelings are kind of unconscious I'm not consciously aware of them all the time so when I had that fucking neuropathic massage and I left the massage office or whatever you call it where massages happen the massage office when I left it and I'm like holy fuck I can move my neck my god I can move my arm I had this overwhelming sense of calm but that night when I was in bed I was getting night terrors, waking up with sudden sense of fucking anxiety, I was sweating, I was experiencing hypnagogic dreams, which are not pleasant at all, they're a first cousin of sleep paralysis. Hypnagogic dream is when you're under stress and you wake up suddenly in the middle of the night and nothing feels real and you don't really know where you are. Like I couldn't tell where I was or what was happening and then that becomes kind of frightening and scary. 
but I couldn't believe all of these intense negative emotions were just flowing through me because someone had released a trapped nerve in my fucking shoulder. It, it was as if my, my sore muscles were storing emotions and then they came out as soon as that muscle was relieved. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it because I don't know if Western science has an answer for that. But that was my legitimate experience. And you know what else it was magnificent for? It was like a ritual in frustration tolerance. Like a huge part of my job. A huge part of life is tolerating the frustration of discomfort in order to achieve a larger goal. Like having to sit down and have someone rip all my muscles apart in utter agony. But sticking with it because I know at the end of it I'm going to feel better. That was a wonderful experience. That was a lovely ritual. The whole thing left me with so many questions. Because this was lived experience of my body apparently storing emotions. It's the only language I can use for it right now. So I started reading a book during the week. I've only begun it. It's fucking fascinating. And I highly recommend it. And the book is called The Body Keeps the Score by a psychologist called Bessel van der Kock. But it's all about unifying Western psychology and bringing in the idea that yes, the body can store pain and the body can store emotions. This week's podcast isn't about that. That was just a little sieg. That was a sieg that I needed to do to get that off my chest so I can move forward. I have a very busy week ahead. I've got four fucking gigs. On Thursday, I'm in London, in the Troxy. On Friday, I'm in Manchester, in the Academy. Then on Saturday, I'm back in Ireland, I'm at Body and Soul. And then on Sunday, I'm at the Docky Book Festival. And I'm doing a live podcast. Four fucking live podcasts in a row, in different locations. With a lot of travelling. So come along if you're around, they're going to be tremendous crack, I can't wait. This week's podcast, I want to speak about the relationship between fine art and military power and how those two worlds often intersect with each other. Like if you think of war from like the 1700s onwards, you think of like Napoleon in his famous red tunic or you think of the American Revolutionary Wars with the red coats and how the British were famous for their red coats. And you're thinking to yourself, geez, all these cunts were at war. Why the fuck were they dressed so dandy and so colourful? What's the point of that? Well, like the Napoleonic Wars or the American Revolutionary Wars, they were fought on a battlefield with, like, horseback and muskets and cannons. These weapons weren't very long-range. They weren't very accurate. The battlefield was almost entirely covered with smoke. A lot of the combat was close and hand-to-hand, like a giant game of soccer. You needed to know what coloured jersey people were wearing, so you don't actually kill someone who's in your own army. Also, bright colourful uniforms were used as a type of spectacle. If you see a giant army on a hillside and they're all wearing red coats, they become one. It becomes frightening. The scale of all that red on the horizon stops being individual soldiers and becomes one giant block of red that's going to kill you. It was psychological theatrics. So why did that stop? Why at the end of the 19th century all of a sudden did soldiers start becoming camouflaged? Why did soldiers all of a sudden not want to be seen? They started wearing khaki. Even the word khaki comes from the Urdu language which is around Pakistan and India and it means the colour of the earth. What happened is that war became industrial Machines started to become involved. Long-range rifles, long-range artillery, guns that don't produce smoke, planes that could drop bombs. Like even at the start of World War I in particular, the French were still wearing colourful bright uniforms and running over the trenches and getting picked off at a distance from machine guns or being bombed overhead from planes that could very easily identify these coloured moving spots on the battlefield. Bright dots against the brown mud. So the French were the first ones to adopt and invent what we'd call a modern camouflage pattern. Like if you think of 
combat pants, you know, that pattern that's on them that's broken abstract shapes of browns and greens and yellows. It was the French who came up with that because of the huge casualties they were experiencing in World War I because of their bright coloured coats. But how did they come up with it? Two podcasts back I spoke about the history of Cubism. I spoke in particular about the paintings of Pablo Picasso who's credited with discovering Cubism. But I spoke specifically about how Picasso essentially stole Cubism from African art because Western painting had traditionally been constricted by Western concepts of time. Western painting was always obsessed with stopping and capturing time in one moment and trying to represent stillness. Whereas African art, because in African cultures it had a different view of time, African art would incorporate time and movement into its art. And it's from this where artists like Picasso came up with Cubism. I'm not just going to paint someone sitting still. I'm going to paint the person from multiple different angles with multiple instances of movement and time incorporated into the painting. And I'm doing this because I'm a modernist and I'm responding to the new invention of the camera. The camera can now capture stillness, so what can I as a painter do to do what a camera can't? Well, I can incorporate movement, time and multiple perspectives and that's what cubism is. But when the French army wanted to create a situation where their soldiers could not be seen, they didn't employ military people to do this. They employed artists, in particular a type of artist known as a camouflage. So what you see here is military power appropriating from the world of fine art or violence. And one artist who was employed by the French military to design camouflage, one of these camouflages, was a fella called Louis Guignard. And Guignard was, he's credited with inventing the first camouflage pattern for military uniforms. But what Guignard did, because this was 1914, which would have been about five years after Picasso and those lads had invented cubism, Guignard took from cubism. Because like I said, cubism is a way of painting where you're not painting stillness, you're incorporating time and movement into your painting. So Guignard invented the camouflage pattern by appropriating from cubism. The camouflage pattern doesn't simply just look like the background that you're trying to camouflage against, otherwise you'd dress up wearing bushes. The camouflage pattern was an optical illusion as such. The reason the camouflage pattern worked on the battlefield and the reason a soldier in a camo pattern can't be seen is because it distorts the perception of movement and time. Your eye will try to fix on the one spot, try and search for that person standing still in the camouflage pattern and at a distance you can't tell. You don't know are they moving, you don't know are they still, you don't know if they're there. So that's what camouflage is. It's applied cubism. It's cubist art used for violence. And the great irony is is that the cubist art was stolen from the African art. But those African countries where that art was produced were colonised by the French who would have colonised Africa in brightly coloured uniforms. So it's like a sick twisted circle. And that's not a hot take. That's actually what it is. The camouflage were literally looking at cubist art as a way to create camouflage. And since then, throughout the 20th century, militaries and intelligence organisations have always... They've looked towards the world of fine art to incorporate techniques from fine art or literature or theatre into evil shit that they're doing. In particular, the likes of the CIA. I've done a full podcast before about the history of CIA involvement in the abstract expressionist movement in art around the 1950s and 1960s. The name of that podcast is Abstract Art and the CIA. But the CIA have done lots of incredibly fucked up shit 
Like when you truly look deep into the mad shit the CIA did and you see that it's not conspiracy theory, it's actual conspiracy where there's facts and evidence, you know they did this shit. When you really look into it, you can kind of lose track of reality. Like in 2016, they found that the CIA was making fake Al-Qaeda videos. Like they paid a UK PR firm $600 million to make loads and loads of Al-Qaeda videos really secretly. Now I mean fucked up videos with executions, beheadings, videos that looked exactly like Al-Qaeda propaganda. And you're going, what the fuck? Why would they spend 500 million making Al-Qaeda videos? It's it's America. Why is America making Al-Qaeda videos? So what they'd do is this UK farm made these videos. They'd put them on CD-ROMs. CD-ROMs would be placed all over Iraq. And then anyone who played the CD-ROM, anyone who, who willingly opened up this Al-Qaeda video in Iraq and played it and watched it on their computer. The CD-ROM also had hidden software that tracked their IP address. And then the Yanks would know, okay, this person's interested in watching Al-Qaeda videos. And then a month later they might get droned. Or you look at what the CIA did in the Philippines, where the CIA borrowed from the world of theatre and folklore and storytelling to commit bizarre acts of evil. So in the Philippines after World War II, the country had been devastated. And the Philippines contained huge amounts of natural resources, massive amounts of natural resources. And the Americans were like, well, we want those natural resources. We would, we would like those natural resources. But the Philippines didn't want American companies in the Philippines mining silver or taking timber or mining copper. But the Philippines was devastated from war and didn't have a lot of money. So America went to the Philippines and said, right, we're going to give you $800 million to rebuild your country. And in exchange... You have to let a lot of American companies come into the Philippines and then take all your natural resources. There was a group of freedom fighters in the Philippines called the Hawks and they were having none of this. They were like, no fucking way. The Philippine government is now handing over the sovereignty of the country and all our natural resources to America. We're not having this. So in the late 1940s, early 1950s, the Hawks, these Philippine insurgents, started a war and they wanted to sabotage any American companies that come to the Philippines to set up mining companies and to do everything they could to keep the Americans out. So what did the CIA do? They didn't want to engage in an all-out war with these insurgents in the Philippines. They didn't want it to be as public as that. They didn't want it to look like America was secretly colonising and extracting resources from the Philippines. So the CIA stepped in and they looked towards the language of theatre and they looked towards local folklore and they found that within the folklore of the Philippines in particularly amongst rural people there were these creatures known as Aswang now Aswang would be like the Irish version of Polka or the fairies supernatural characters that exist in folklore that you have to be afraid of and mindful of. Quite similar to Irish folklore actually because a lot of these demons that are present in Filipino folklore, like there's one in particular called the Mananangal, which is a type of vampire. But at night time it's this terrifying vampire, but in daytime it can disguise itself as a human, which is something the fairies in Ireland can do too. But people were particularly afraid of this Mananangal she was kind of like a banshee but a much more terrifying banshee the manangal was a woman with giant wings like a bat and she could separate her upper body so it would fly up into the air like a bat but at night time it would find a victim in the woods bite its neck and suck all the blood from its body and like rural Irish people in the 1940s rural Filipino people in the 1940s 
this was their culture, this was their folklore. They would have been genuinely afraid of these supernatural beings. This was part of their culture. So what the CIA did is they would pick an area in the countryside or in the forest where they knew an American mining company was going to come and build a mine or build a railway or build an oil rig. They'd wait till night time. They'd send teams of CIA military operatives into the forest wherever the hawks were operating. The hawks were the insurgents. And the CIA officers would find a group of these insurgents, kill them all, then put puncture holes in their necks and drain their bodies of blood and they'd leave these bodies hanging all around the forest. So the next day when the hawk fighters found their comrades dead with all the blood drained from their body and holes in their necks, they didn't think that like secret military officers had come in the night time they 100% believed that it was one of these fucking vampires that it was one of these vampires from folklore it terrified them all so much that the Hawk organisation basically fell apart the fighters weren't willing to go into the jungle because they were genuinely afraid of vampires giant vampire bats that were going to suck all the blood out of their body and they surrendered in 1954 so what we have there is the CIA not engaging in conventional warfare, but instead borrowing from the language of theatre. Like that's the spectacle of theatre right there. That's theatre that's informed by local folklore. But they're borrowing from the world of art to engage in colonising warfare. Very sneaky stuff because the whole shtick with America especially after World War II, America was the hero of the world. America was the country with all the money that's rebuilding the rest of the world after World War II. America was the saviour, the liberator, coming to the Philippines with $800 million to help them rebuild the victors of World War II, liberating the concentration camps and now bringing their generosity to the Philippines. They weren't their fuck. They were extracting the resources and they couldn't be seen to the Filipino people to be engaging in warfare and killing and murdering Filipino people. So instead, they just said, let's pretend we're vampires. And I've heard the CIA described before as the the organised crime wing of the US government. Because that's what they do. They gather intelligence, but mostly throughout the 20th century... The CIA's interest was in toppling democratically elected governments using really evil, covert, illegal criminal tactics in a sneaky way that could never be pinned on them. But the CIA also put huge, huge effort, resources and money into controlling and influencing culture in the 20th century. In particular, the art world. Now, like I said, I did do a full podcast on how the CIA funded visual art, visual fine art. But just to synopsize it, why would the CIA pump millions into funding abstract painters, American abstract painters of the 1950s? Painters who are painting weird shit on canvases. Painters like Jackson Pollock, who was literally throwing paint at a canvas and saying, this is art. Why would the CIA fund that? How does that help them win wars? It was ideological. In the 1950s and the 1960s, that was the height of the Cold War. You had two massive superpowers. You had America and you had the Soviet Union. And this was the world after World War II. America represented the ideology of capitalism and democracy. The Soviet Union represented communism. One narrative that the Soviet Union would use against America in the 50s and in the 60s was America might have money and might have capitalism but they have no culture America is a cultureless place they don't have culture and history the way that Russia does or the way that Europe does America isn't legitimate it's shallow so America wanted to change that narrative by associating America with the most progressive and free thinking art in the world because artistic expression was suppressed in the Soviet Union. Most visual art in the Soviet Union 
was state-sponsored art. It was known as Soviet realism. A lot of radical painters and radical artists from the Russian Revolution ended up as state-funded artists in the Soviet Union. So Russian realism as a type of painting was kind of blatant propaganda art. Paint a painting and the painting has to look exactly like what you're painting. And you should only really paint paintings of Soviet people working for the good of the government and the people. So that's what a lot of Soviet art was. Controlled by the government. Paintings of the people working in the field, working in factories. All of the approved art, visual art in the Soviet Union. Overtly, deliberately and explicitly conveyed the message of the state which was communism. So America wanted to do the opposite. If in the Soviet Union, the government says you must only draw people and places in a realistic way that represents the government's message. Well, here in America, you can paint whatever you want. So these painters like Jackson Pollock or Mark Rothko that were painting very, very abstract paintings, like no representation, no people, just shapes and colours. These paintings were the grandchildren of Cubism. The CIA secretly funded these artists because they wanted to promote the idea that abstract expressionist art represents freedom, democracy and capitalism. The American dream. In America, you can literally throw paint at a blank canvas and sell it for millions. That's what America is. The blank canvas is the American frontier and the paint is the colonisation of it. Abstract expressionism is frontierism and it's very lucrative. But here's the thing. The American government can't, like, fund artists. The American government can't decide what art is to promote the values of that government. The American government can't be openly seen to fund art as state propaganda. Sure isn't that what the Russians are doing with their Soviet realism. But the Yanks were doing the exact same thing. Ten steps removed from the artist. Secretly funneling the money in. Creating state-sponsored propaganda art. Just like the Soviets. Now a lot of these painters were actually quite left-leaning. Socialist. Some of them were even communist. They didn't fucking know that all of their funding was coming from the CIA. The CIA kept it secret. The CIA would pretend to be like art dealers and buy these paintings for millions and inflate their value. And the artists hadn't a clue. They were part of an ideological war and their paintings were being used as tools to promote American capitalist values. But what I found out recently and what I've been doing research into is that the CIA not only funded abstract art but they funded a huge amount of 20th century literature as well. And a lot of huge 20th century writers were given the platforms that they were given because of secret covert CIA funding. And I'm going to talk about that right after the ocarina pause. I don't have the the ocarina this week because I'm in my office. I'm in my office right now, late at night. But I do have my Puerto Rican guayro. So let's have the Puerto Rican guayro pause. And you're going to hear some adverts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The nice relaxing guero. You would have heard an advert there. 
digitally inserted by Acast. But support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. As you can tell, quite a large amount of research and writing goes into making this podcast each week because it's a monologue essay podcast. And I adore doing this work. I fucking love doing it. But I wouldn't be able to do it every week if it wasn't my full-time job and I couldn't dedicate all of my time to it. So if you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you entertainment, comfort, solace, a break, whatever this podcast does to you, if you're consuming that work, please consider paying me for that work. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. That's how I earn a living and pay my bills. But if you can't afford that, don't worry about it. You can listen for free. If you can afford it, please consider subscribing to the Patreon and becoming a patron because you're paying for the person who can't afford it to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast and I earn a living. It's a wonderful model based on soundness and kindness. Also what it does is it keeps this podcast independent. I don't have to worry about being secretly funded by the government, but I do have to worry about being funded by advertisers. Now, there are adverts on this podcast in order for me to fulfil my contract with Acast, but the Patreon gives me control around that. I can tell advertisers to fuck off if I want to, because quite a lot of advertisers, what they want in exchange for advertising and sponsoring a podcast is a degree of creative control. If this podcast episode was sponsored by an advertiser, I would have to give them the podcast episode in advance, they'd have to sign off on it, And they could say, no, I don't think we want you doing the podcast about the relationship between art and the military. Who the fuck wants to listen to that? Why don't you do a podcast about something that's trending? Love Island is really popular right now. I think we want you to do a podcast this week about Love Island because we're sponsoring this podcast. All this arty farty stuff, that's not our brand. I don't ever want to do that because then I'm not making a podcast that I'm passionate about, that I enjoy. And that model there is why so much television is shit and why so much radio is shit. So please support independent podcasters because the podcast environment is changing. It's becoming very corporate. Smaller podcasts are getting pushed out and the creators that are making content that they're passionate about, that they care about, that results in a really good listen. These creators genuinely need support from the actual listeners. So subscribe to Patreons leave reviews, follow podcasts, share podcasts on your social media of independent creators. Patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. Oh, one little gig plug as well, actually. I'm doing the Ballybunion Arts Festival at the end of July. If you're down around Kerry, come down to Ballybunion. It's a fucking gorgeous place. Kerry's a beautiful place. Come down to the Ballybunion Arts Festival at the end of July and come to my live podcast it's going to be great crack in a beautiful setting in a beautiful area and you'll find those tickets online if you just google them actually if you want your little excuse to experience the beauty of Kerry because you know about three or four podcasts ago I did a podcast about the Dingle Peninsula and the Schlieve Mish Mountains and the mythology around that area if you want to visit that beautiful area the Ballybunion Arts Festival is a, is a good excuse to have a little staycation it's quite close to the Dingle Peninsula. It's about 20-30 minutes drive. So, on to the subject of 20th century literature. There's a literary magazine called the Paris Review, which could possibly be the most important literary magazine of the 20th century. It's still released today, four times a year. The Paris Review would have helped to launch the international careers of writers like Samuel Beckett or Jack Kerouac George Louis Borges like in the 20th century it would have mostly male writers to be honest unfortunately but it would have anyone who was anyone in mid 20th century writing was getting published in the Paris Review this magazine was deciding what's hot and what's not in writing and you know where I'm going with this It was founded by the CIA. It also published 
established writers at the time like T.S. Eliot, Ernest Hemingway, it set the global tone for what was considered important writing. Now, of course, none of these writers would have had any idea whatsoever that the Paris Review would have been involved with the CIA. It was founded in 1953, and in the 1950s, people didn't really know how evil, fucked up and weird the CIA were. Like, 53 is the same year that the CIA were in the Philippines pretending that vampires were real. People didn't really know that democratically elected governments around the world were being toppled by the CIA and puppet governments being put in their place. Paris Review was founded by three people, Harold Humes, Peter Matheson and George Plimpton. I want to speak about Harold Humes first. Harold Humes wasn't in the CIA. He was just like an eccentric American rich kid who moved to Paris in the 1940s and really loved literature and while he was in Paris he wanted to start a literary magazine so he started it with Matheson and Plimpton now this is where conspiracy goes to conspiracy theory so Harold Humes who founded the magazine at some point in the 1950s he met the LSD scientist Timothy Leary and Humes took a huge amount of LSD and lost his mind he became highly eccentric and he would speak frequently about believing that he was being followed he would speak about thinking that his bedposts were tapped and they were recording him and he would speak about the CIA and specifically he would speak about the CIA MK Ultra LSD experiments because the CIA in the 1950s and 60s and this is fact had a secret a secret operation called MK Ultra where they were testing LSD and all other substances on American citizens to try and it was a mind control program run by a fella called Sidney Gottlieb who was friends with Timothy Leary who gave Hume the LSD that drove him mad now Hume ended up institutionalised he had gone fully psychotic and became institutionalised And the person, Peter Madison, the other person who founded the Paris Review with Hume, ended up feeling sorry that his friend who he founded the magazine with had gone psychotic, had become paranoid, thought he was being followed. And Madison went to Hume in the psychiatric hospital and said, You know what, you're right. All this time I've been a CIA agent. You can't tell anyone, but you're correct. I've been a CIA agent all along and the Paris Review has been a a covert CIA operation. Now publicly to this day, I don't think Matheson has been that open and clear. He is honest in saying, yeah, okay, I was a CIA agent, but the CIA didn't like tell us what to publish in the Paris Review. But come on, like. Also, in the 70s, Hume applied for a Freedom of Information Act and it turns out Yes, he was being followed by the CIA because he's running a magazine that's run by the CIA, but he doesn't know it. So if you're thinking, like, why the fuck would the CIA fund the Paris Review? Well, it was about controlling narrative. The Paris Review would have been read all the world over by intellectuals and by the CIA having a hand in that narrative, they could control how intellectuals around the world viewed the USA. They would also fund magazines in in Latin American countries, like a very important literary movement in South America in the 20th century is known as magical realism, with writers like George Louis Borges or Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who were published in the Paris Review. And there's a theory that the CIA wanted to promote writers who were writing about like magical realism is is very abstract very fantastical surreal almost fantasy and by the CIA promoting and funding these writers and putting these to the forefront of what literature is it then suppresses the writers who are writing more revolutionary political stuff in countries that the CIA are actively toppling governments in so we're going to pump a bunch of money into writers that are left-leaning, that are thinking about the world, but we're going to make sure 
that the ones that get seen are not the ones that are critiquing American foreign policy too much. So like with how the CIA funded abstract expressionist painting, they get to control the tastes of the world when it comes to art and literature and effectively creating propaganda for America, but also at all times using the logic of if we don't do it, the Russians will. If we don't fund secretly the left-leaning writers, the left-leaning publications, if we don't have a hand in here and a control and knowledge and intelligence, then Russia, the Soviet Union, is going to fill up that space and now they'll fund writers that promote a communist message. Like when I'm trying to understand the fucking madness of the CIA, I often think of the example of the north of Ireland. Now this hasn't been proven, this one hasn't been proven, but a lot of people say that like the IRA brought a lot of American guns into the north of Ireland in the 70s and 80s. Armalites, American weapons, ships from Boston full of guns made it to the north of Ireland and these guns were going to be used by the IRA to fight the British. Now some people say there is no fucking way that the IRA could have gotten entire ships full of guns out of America to Ireland without CIA help. It just couldn't have happened. Not possible. And then you think, why the fuck would the CIA help the IRA bring American guns to the north of Ireland for those guns to be used against British soldiers, Britain being a main ally of America? Why the fuck would the CIA do that? Well, the people who reckon it's true would say, control and involvement. The IRA are going to bring in guns from somewhere. So if we don't do it, what if the Soviets do? What if the IRA go to the Soviets and now the Soviets are bringing guns to the IRA? What if the Soviets implant communism in the north of Ireland? So we better make sure that we're giving the IRA their guns. They're still getting guns, but at least we control it. We know how many they have and it's not the Soviets. Now that there is conspiracy theory because I don't think anyone's proven that the CIA helped the IRA bring guns in but it's an example of the type of logic that the CIA use. We can't stop left-leaning writers from publishing. We can't stop them. That would be too Soviet of us. So instead, we're going to fund them, give them money and then we get to control and decide who gets hard and who doesn't. And we're going to do it in a way that the writers have having a fucking clue. So it is fact it's actual fact that one of the founders of the Paris Review was a CIA agent as a way to shape and control fucking modern literature. But something that's a bit more controversial is the CIA also funded writers' workshops in America, in particular the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which was a master of fine arts and creative writing in America, which produced quite a lot of famous American writers. But by the 1950s, it was receiving funding from CIA front organisations. There's a book called Workshops of Empire by Eric Bennett. And he argues that anti-communist organisations and CIA fronts funded these writer workshops, in particular the Iowa Writers Workshop, and fundamentally changed how creative writing was to be written. And some of the things that were taught were when you're writing... You write sensations, not doctrines. Experiences, not dogmas. Memories, not philosophies. And it's argued that this was a way to depoliticize American writing. Make the work abstract, metaphorical, individualist, open to interpretation. To be too literal, to be too overtly political is bad writing. By contrasting it with Soviet art, like with the abstract expressionists and Soviet realism, Soviet realist painting was make very explicit, blatant political paintings that reflect the views of the state. Well, these anti-communist organisations that were funding the writers' workshops were saying, no, no, that's bad art, that's bad writing. And one, and this is highly contested, but one highly contested theory is that there's a phrase within writing called show, don't tell. You'll find this in the writing of Ernest Hemingway in particular. But show, don't tell basically means don't be explicit. Don't, don't explain your character's actions or thoughts. 
Here's the most cliched example that you'll know from, you'll know this from TV and cinema. This is the most cliched show don't tell. If a character on, in TV or in movies is sad, don't show them crying. Show them looking out a window and on the window is rain. So instead, we, the viewer, get the implicit suggestion that the character is upset. But we don't get to see their literal tears. That would be too explicit. But some argue that show don't tell was deliberately taught in these workshops to make writing more vague, more abstract, more open to interpretation and less literal and ideological and blatant like Soviet work. But from these workshops and from the Iowa Writers Workshop, you get writing like people like Raymond Carver. And Carver kind of established the style, the dominant style of the American 20th century short story. But Carver definitely embodies that show-don't-tell style. Like what makes Raymond Carver's writing beautiful. Like he's got a book called What We Talk About When We Talk About Love which is a collection of short stories and it's fucking amazing because what Carver can do is they're barely even short stories they're like collections of just scenes but you could read a Raymond Carver short story and you haven't a fucking clue what happened you're almost left finishing the story going is that it? but he's such a master of that style that when you read a Raymond Carver short story you're left with that confusion of What the fuck just happened? What was that about? But it will stick with you for days. The way that a dream will stick with you. When you have a dream and you're like, what the fuck was that dream? But you can't stop trying to figure it out and think about it for days. Raymond Carver can do that with his short stories. And I love it. But it is an example of that writer's work, American writer's workshop style, which was funded by the CIA and that style is sensations not doctrines experiences not dogmas memories not philosophies it's heavily present in Carver's work and that shaped a very popular way to write short stories so that last bit there about the CIA funding the the writers workshops in America that's the bit that's a bit more hazy they're definitely sh- the CIA definitely did fund but how much control they had over the writing style or whether that was ideological that's the bit that's contested and that you'll get arguments about the Paris Review shit that's we know that because in 1967 it all came out the CIA had to admit to it in 1967 a, a CIA officer called Tom Braden came out and said look yeah We've been funding tons of literary magazines all around the world. This is what we've been doing. And everyone was shocked. Going, the fuck? You're, you're supposed to be the CIA. You're, fund, you're funding magazines? And why the CIA up to now? Because this shit becomes a lot more difficult when you have the internet. There wasn't as much free access to information back then. But the weird thing now is... The CIA are kind of open about what they're explicitly funding. Something which was not the case in the 50s, 60s and 70s. It was all covertly hidden. So there's a company called Inqtel. I-N-Q-Tel. And Inqtel is like the venture capital arm of the CIA. It's out in the open. You can go to the Inqtel website. And you go to the Inqtel website. And it's like, how are you getting on lads? We're the CIA. And we get billions off the government each year. And what we do is we pick companies and we invest in these companies so that these private companies can do the CIA's work. And you can go to the Inqtel website and see it all. They're mostly investing in companies that are into artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, climate change shit. And that's all out there in the open. But my guess is, is that's just the CIA going, look, you all have the internet. You all know what, we, what we've done in the past. You all know the crack with us. So we're going to give the illusion of being hugely open by showing you everything that we're investing in. But they obviously have a bunch of shit that they're doing right now that we haven't a clue about. Because that's what they do. Like I did a podcast a few years back showing how... Remember Pokemon Go? 
like Pokemon Go. The, inf- the, the technological infrastructure of that was funded by InQtel and the CIA. They were making Pokemon appear in places all over the world and then people were chasing the Pokemon with their phones. But really what they're doing is they're collecting the visual data of the area and then the CIA are taking that visual data to create maps. Like my biggest conspiracy theory of all, completely unfounded, talking out of my arse, just a hunch that I have. But Twitter really... If, if I found out that Twitter was a CIA operation, I'd go, yeah, I can see why that's the case. Because here, here's the thing with fucking Twitter. The internet is a wonderful space where people all over the world can have discussions about really important things. Race, gender, equality, inequality, the standard of living, criticising governments. We can all do this on the internet. For some fucking reason, however, the website where the most important conversations happen is Twitter. Anyone who has left-leaning politics, who wants to speak about left-leaning issues in particular, they all flock to Twitter. Now, have you ever seen a decent, constructive conversation happen around politics on Twitter? No. It immediately descends into hostility and performative cruelty. I have seen groups of people, left-leaning people, who have the same goals, who have the same wants and desires. I've seen them rip the absolute shit out of each other and descend into chaos and frenzy because the conversation is is happening on Twitter. Twitter is a space where the most important conversations happen and the infrastructure of Twitter itself is designed to make people fight and fall out with each other so nothing gets resolved. But at all times you have the illusion of actually having meaningful discourse. Twitter is points-based combat where The website will only let you have a conversation in the least amount of words in a hostile environment. So every single conversation must descend into combat. That sounds to me like a fucking dream for any intelligence organisation who's trying to split up and cause dissent among any group of people who has a set of ideas that they disagree with. I have zero evidence for that. Zero. All I'm saying is that if I found out that Twitter was run by the CIA all along, I'd go, that makes sense. And you know what? The reason I have to distance myself from that statement and explicitly say, I am not saying that I genuinely believe Twitter is a CIA operation. I've no evidence. It's a feeling in my belly. I'm talking out of my hole. The reason I have to say that is to protect that statement from Twitter because some absolute goal will tweet Blind Boy was on his podcast today saying that Twitter is run by the CIA and they'll misrepresent me for clout and retweets and then my mentions will be a living fucking hell for a week which will then ravish my mental health so no, I'm not saying that Twitter is run by the CIA it just does the type of thing they like to do and also Blind Boy said on his podcast today that Show Don't Tell was created by the CIA. No, I didn't. I presented an argument that I read online where someone said that, but it's to be taken with a pinch of salt. Because every so often, someone will tweet, Show Don't Tell was invented by the CIA, and it just seems to annoy the most annoying people, and I could do without that. Alright, I'll chat to you next week. This was an enjoyable rambling hot take into the relationship between art and the military and CIA. Mind yourselves, rub a dog, enjoy the sun, smell the air. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.